Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Will Bode. And I'm Dan Epps. So we're back fairly soon after our last episode, our very special guest episode. I don't know if everybody noticed, we, we kind of just ended that episode abruptly without doing our, our lead out. So we will make sure not to make that mistake again. I know you were all missing that, where we say the same thing we say every episode. So we will say that stuff today. I was just so excited about where the conversation ended. I didn't want to. Uh, yeah, you just wanted to go out on a high note. Maybe you pressed the stop recording button before you were supposed to, and you just said, never mind. Any number of those things are true. So what other stuff to check in on? We've got some opinions to talk about. Let's stay non-substantive uh, for a minute. We asked everybody to rate and review, and some of you did that. Uh, I could still use more of you to do that on the Apple Podcasts app. Unfortunately, whenever we ask that, we get like more some people coming in positive and some people coming in, um, they're reminded that they want to say something negative. So we've got a user, GTS11, who says, Will and Dan are great on doctrine. Okay, that's positive. But they aren't able to effectively engage on the political side. Discussion of the Alito WSJ piece is a great example. Will offering a series of increasingly strained defenses and misreadings, and Dan whinily pushing back. It goes nowhere. And please, no more dumb voicemail songs. That last request, I'm going to reject. We will play the voicemail songs. They're good. People like them. If you don't like them, you are a spoil sport and uh, you are not with the majority. But I don't know. Are you, do you feel chastened by your strained defenses? I mean, I did enjoy that he gave it to both sides. So I'm a little yeah. unclear on what this person's reading of the WSJPs was and why yeah. your responses were inadequate. Yeah. Like, was I the problem that I was pushing back? I was just whiny about it. I don't really know. I don't know what I was supposed to do. I do like that in the last month, the reviews have, have been kind of equal opportunity. So we also have a, yeah. another reviewer complains that, you know, this is the best show, best law podcast around, but it's become impossible to listen to given Epps's clearly disdainful, bad faith criticisms of the conservatives <laughs> in the court. And then on the other hand, you know, somebody who says this is a treasure amidst other less nerdy podcasts, but I am sometimes irked by Will's spiel as our scholar of perpetual interpretive charity for conservatives, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying that. Yeah. Uh, so that review also said, P.S. Am I the only one who mentally fills in the tagline as unscheduled, unpredictable, unsolicited? I don't totally know what that means. Like nobody basically is that the idea that nobody wants us to record these episodes? Is that, well, is that the <laughs> shtick? I think so. Whether you like it or not, here yeah. we go. I mean, you don't have to listen. I mean, that's the thing about um, people who leave bad reviews for podcasts. There is no law. They repealed the law that says you have to listen to our podcast, unfortunately. So um, there are lots of other podcasts. But thank you to those who left reviews. I got uh, a friend of mine, perhaps a colleague, uh, forced him to to leave a review, for which I'm grateful. I won't name that person, but keep them coming. Any other things to catch up on? Should we talk about the court? I mean, we usually do. You might want to be more specific than that so what are you what are you thinking well i feel like we've now become the sort of running uh, ethics commentary uh on the supreme court and those developments continue apace but actually the the one interesting development that's happened i think since last we talked about it is the not the court but the senate tried to get some information from harlan crow about you know exactly what what he's up to and a full accounting of 
the gifts he's given to Justice Thomas, I think ostensibly so that they can contemplate federal gift tax reform, because <laughs> this is to the, the Senate Committee on Finance. And Harlan Crow, as apparently represented by Gibson Dunn, uh, wrote back a, uh, a nice long letter saying he is not going to respond to that subpoena, which he views as unconstitutional. And actually uh, discussing an issue spotter that I put on my Conlaw One structure exam a couple years ago, which is whether the limits on congressional subpoenas in Trump versus Mazars, the sort of limits on the Senate's ability to subpoena the president, whether those also apply to the Supreme Court justices, where sort of the apex officials, you know, of the other branch in Harlan Crow implies that they do, and that he is uh, not going to be dragged into this. What was, uh, in terms of the model answer in your exam, what did you conclude was the correct answer? Or is there no correct answer? I think this was one where either answer, as long as you spotted the issues, either either answer was was plausible. I think it's probably right that it does. I mean, it, the court's jurisprudence about the scope of congressional kind of subpoena authority is itself a little confusing. Or kind of seesaws in like some cases over 100 years ago about sort of broad authority versus some limits. It kind of ends on relatively broad authority for a while, but the court then starts kind of limiting in weird ways to in response to the red scare in a kind of series of strange but but you know a lot of decisions that are not formally about the fact that these are communists and you know and then i think uh mazars is clearly pouring in another level of skepticism that we can't just let you know some committee say that it's interested in legislation and use that as an excuse to haul politics into the court so do you think that this will this will go anywhere or do you think this is this is the end of the road on this I don't think this is going to go anywhere. I think the usual, usually it's hard for these things to go anywhere just because it takes so much time uh, yeah. if anybody really wants to push it. And then, you know, by then things are turned over. And so. Yeah. I don't totally buy the argument made in the letter that this isn't something that's validly within the Senate Finance Committee's jurisdiction, right? I mean, you might be curious about amending the gift tax law, particularly because of instances where you know private citizens are you know giving things of value to public officials right that might be a reason why you might think oh gosh we need greater disclosure of these things or something like that i think it's really i think that's i think that's a hard thing to say you know for courts to be able to say oh this just definitely isn't legitimate i don't know Could well that's just, i mean things. of course it's legitimate in some sense if you took the doctrine completely at face value yes you'd say of course it's legitimate there's just there's clearly in the doctrine a kind of second level of, I don't know, a balance between how much we think this is really about a legislative prerogative and how much we think this is really about political grandstanding, which again dates back to the the, the Red Scare. And of course, Congress has some potential legislative reasons to want to haul people in front of Congress and make them say whether they are now or ever have been affiliated with the Communist Party, but the court, you know, found reasons means- to say that. Might not be legitimate. not everything that Congress does has to be like leading to a piece of legislation, right? I mean, Congress has an oversight role. Well, in general, it's o- right? Its oversight role is not enumerated in the Constitution. So the theory is the oversight role is in service of some other power it has. It could be yeah. impeachment, not yeah. legislation. Could so, be. so they could say, and I think, but I think there the fact that it's the Committee on Finance is not who would have jurisdiction over that. So I think over the House whatever it is, Judiciary Oversight Committee that said, you know, we are considering impeachment. Why would it be the court's responsibility to police the like internal separation of functions within one of the legislative branches? I mean, the Uh, Senate could, you know, I don't know, other stuff can happen in committees and the the Senate can accept it or not. Harlan Crow cites a case for the proposition, a Red Scare case for the proposition that that is one of the considerations. Because again, if, if you think that 
there is a lot of unfair hauling private people into politics you know going on in congress then one way to to try to strike a balance is to say you know at least if your committee has legitimate jurisdiction over this topic you know maybe we'll give you deference but if the you know it's just that somebody has to be in their bonnet and wants to use the fact that they're a senator to embarrass you then maybe not yeah i don't know i'm not sure not sure I'm comfortable with courts making those calls, but I don't think it really matters. Um, I should say I'm not sure that Congress should have an oversight ability at all. Hmm. At least not not a non non. There's no enumerated. What, what would it power. look like for Congress to not have an oversight role? If Congress wanted to have people testify in front of Congress, they could ask them to. But if people didn't want to, Congress wouldn't have any coercive powers to force them to. So Congress should not have a subpoena power at all. I am skeptical of of that case law that's that would be a big change right there's enough history supporting it that uh, that, that chastens my skepticism as a as a oh, you don't yeah but, you don't really care about precedent you, you you'll blow you'd blow everything up right that's what no but i mean history you know the entire 19th century is full of a complicated history of congress demanding information but that suggests that congress does have, have some kinds of powers in this area but but even that history is kind of confused and tested and i'm not satisfied with it Justice Thomas came came started to flirt with that view in in Mazars, and I thought he made some good points. All right, enough about that. Anything else? Let's talk about some opinions, Dan. Okay, got some opinions. We're finally getting uh, some decent opinions. We got a fairly good uh, dump of opinions last week on Thursday. We got five opinions, including three that we had been talking about already on the show. So. Those three, I, I guess there's two we're not going to talk about. And should should we talk about the fact that we're not going to talk about them? Or should we not talk about that fact? Their names are Santos Zacharia versus Garland, a case about exhaustion and jurisdiction, and Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico versus Centro de Periodismo Investigui, Investigativo Incorporated. That, about, that was good. You recovered nicely on that. I think you got the accents in the right place and everything, the stresses. Uh, it's like jumping off a cliff about Puerto Rico's sovereign immunity. Yeah. I don't think we'll say anything else about that. No, that's, we're going to leave those there. Somebody else can handle those. But the three we got that we are going to talk about are National Pork Producers Council versus Ross. Okay. So uh, Dormant Commerce Clause case we talked about, about whether California has the power to ban uh, the sale of pork that is not uh, produced uh, in a way that it finds satisfactory. We're going to have a lot to say about that. And then two federal criminal cases uh, that we talked about uh, in conjunction about uh, wire fraud, Prococo versus United States and Ciminelli versus United States. Mm-hmm. So maybe start with with a pork case. I think it's the meatiest of the three. <laughs> Okay, that's the last one of those you get this episode. And so I, I think there's a danger with this one that we're going to just use up all our time talking about it. So with that acknowledged, if that happens, it happens. So taking us back on this one, we talked about this one you know, some number of months ago. This case was argued uh, in October, one of the earliest cases. This term, I think we both thought this was going to be a case that was going to divide the court, that, there, that this was kind of a hard case uh, in light of precedent, but also in light of, you know, what people's, you know, ideological, you know, common sense gut reactions were going to be, because it's a case with reasonably high stakes, right? Because uh, if California is allowed to pass a law that limits 
the way the, the, how what pork can be sold based on the way it is raised in other states. And almost all pork that is sold in California is apparently raised uh, in other states. This is going to have meaningful economic effects and sort of industry-wide effects because California is the biggest market. And so it leads to all these other questions about what other, what other stuff could California effectively ban, make everybody else in the country have to change their behavior, so on and so on. On the other hand, uh, it seemed maybe a little hard to come up with a clear rule for why California shouldn't be allowed to do that, given that California states are usually allowed to like decide what stuff gets sold in their states. Did we even reach a prediction on this one? I intentionally did not go back and listen to our old episode before <laughs> recording this one. I think my view was that the right thing to do was for the court to uphold California's law, but that they were probably going to strike it down. So I and think so I wrong. You got it wrong. Although, did you, for a really weird reason, <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about. So the court does uh, uphold the California law here, though it does so in kind of a fractured way. Okay. So what's weird is they do it in a partly fractured way and a partly unanimous way. Because there are yes. way, two different questions doctrinally about the case, one of which the court is unanimous on and unanimously kind of effectively overturns several of their old precedents or like whatever, narrowing it, I guess we call it. But there is this line of dormant commerce clause precedents that explicitly deal with extraterritoriality, where it's a little more explicit than California, but where you have a law that like is explicitly hinged in part on out-of-state conduct. You can't charge prices in this state that are in extra relationship to the prices you charge in other states that the courts struck down in several cases, but that, you know, in the conflict of laws books or any other books that cover the Dormant Commerce Clause are sort of taught as the the extraterritoriality doctrine. And that was kind of like the lead argument for the pork producers is that, well, this is a, a modest extension of the extraterritoriality doctrine. If if there is an extraterritoriality doctrine, if there is a principle that California can't regulate the commerce in other states. We all know that's really what's going on here. Uh, California is regulating the production outside of California, and it's a problem. And the court unanimously, Justice Gorsuch writing a majority opinion for the court, uh, and I think joined by everybody, I think, at least all the other justices described themselves as concurring in part and dissenting in part, and this is the part they concur in. The court unanimously kind of says, well, that, that doctrine isn't really about extraterritoriality per se. It's about the more traditional concern of the dormant commerce laws against discrimination against out of states, other states. So there isn't really any longer a separate extraterritoriality doctrine. I think that's a big deal. The court to just kind of unanimously kill that, even if it's confusing. Yeah, <laughs> at least one means. one coming through the the commerce clause. Right? right, there could be some other principle. Can I pause right there? Not not pause the recording, but just pause you. And since I did go back, I just looked at our transcript of the of the pork episode oh yeah we have transcripts we do have transcripts uh check out the transcripts that episode came out october 2nd so seven months ago seven months ago reasonable that we don't remember i predicted that the california law would be upheld and you disagreed with me there you go okay but back to what you were saying so yep. there is no longer just sort of a a broad extraterritoriality rule or to the extent that there was this has been recast pause on this just for a second because it's my hobby horse as a federalism and conflict of laws scholar justice Gorsuch had written one of the court of appeals decisions about this as a 10th circuit judge i think suggesting that the extraterritoriality branch of the case law ought to be killed because taken seriously it'd be too radical 
So maybe in some sense, it's not surprising. That's where he came out on this. There's this general problem that everybody knows that there are some limits on states' ability to regulate extraterritorially. Yeah. We've talked about this. People think about this a lot, for instance, in the abortion context, that there's some limit on Texas's, Texas's ability to ban Illinois abortions. And nobody knows what part of the Constitution it is that says that, and therefore nobody knows quite like how to ground those principles or what they are. And so that, for a while, the Dormant Commerce Clause, at least, was like descriptively the place that that had been grounded the most. There are some due process cases, a little full fifth in credit, occasionally one of other stuff. And so this kind of will heighten the mystery of where in the Constitution is that principle, or like, is it okay if it's a non-textual principle? And the court kind of says that. It's like, well, this is not a Dormant Commerce Clause thing. Maybe it's the full fifth in credit clause. Maybe it's Shelby County, they cite in a footnote. <laughs> the Shelby County equal sovereignty principle might be that, the basis for this. That doesn't make any sense. A plus, A plus trolling. Justice Kavanaugh writes a concurring opinion about that. So I enjoyed that part of the opinion while at the same time I, I wept a little bit for the, you know, uh conflict of law system. But but all right. That's yeah. Can, well, can we can we linger on that uh, yeah. just for a minute more? And you know, you have a, a, a quite useful Vala conspiracy post about this. Like there does have to still have to be some limit, right? Yes. Like we think that Missouri could not just like pass a statute that says like smoking in Illinois is illegal, yes. right? And send you to jail for smoking if you've never been in Missouri and didn't buy cigarettes that came through Missouri and didn't do anything yes. in relation to Missouri, right? Yes. That seems that seems like it has to be right. Yeah. But even that and I think it, that probably can't come from the Commerce Clause because there could be other stuff that a state might want to regulate in another state that doesn't have anything to do with commerce. Maybe. I mean, so that's why the Commerce Clause has never been totally satisfying, but at least that, that it's some of the work. So sometimes there's people cite due process, right? So in like personal jurisdiction cases, we use due process as the home for the limits on one state's ability to haul you before that state's courts if you've never been connected to them. Now, there have been questions about why that's the role of the Due Process Clause and Justice Gorsuch, following uh, front of the show, Steve Sachs, have suggested there's a, a more complicated rethinking going on there. But maybe the due process clause, the full faith and credit clause, seems like it has something to do with how states relate to one another. So some early case law relied on the full faith and credit clause, but in some sense, the you know it, it's still hard to f- figure out whether that's really what it you'd expect it to be doing. And the full faith and credit clause is mostly about interstate recognition of of judgments and decisions and so on so if you read the the article four criminal extradition clause that says that uh people who commit a crime in one state and then flee from justice you know have to be delivered up to the state where they where they committed the crime it sort of seems to assume something about where crimes are committed it says a person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime who shall flee from justice and be found in another state shall on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. I mean, you have to unpack that a little bit. That's sort of like, it's certainly assuming a paradigm where like you're in a place, you commit a crime there, and then you go somewhere else. And so it's hard to... It doesn't really say that though. It never says it. It just says like you could be charged in one state for a crime committed elsewhere, mm-hmm. and you're in that state and then you flee that state, that mm-hmm. person would have been charged in the state, would have fled from justice, and then would have been found in another state and then could be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. So if it's, is it just the having jurisdiction of the crime? 
well, you think it's doing the work? It's not quite clear what's doing the work. It's just, as I say, it seems to demonstrate an assumption, I guess, about, but, but yes, you could, you could say, no, this works fine. If you say Missouri has jurisdiction over yeah. Illinois cigarettes. What about the sixth amendment? Good. It's for criminal, amendment. criminal. Right prosecutions, right? In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Wherein the crime shall have been committed, right? So that again assumes it's being committed somewhere. Yeah. So now one option would be, I mean, you could say, well, if Missouri wants to prosecute you for smoking Illinois cigarettes, they just need to get an Illinois jury. And maybe, you know, maybe they can or can't do that. (laughs) But, but maybe Missouri would say, no, it's the crime is a Missouri crime. Yeah, you know, it is illegal in Missouri to smoke cigarettes in in Illinois. But what does it mean to say you committed that crime in Missouri if you smoke cigarettes in Illinois? Indeed, doesn't make any sense. And uh, that, and but the other but it wouldn't solve the problem because they could just get you for a petty offense, right? Without without a jury. Yeah, and you might have thought though that Article Six plus the Dormant Commerce Clause might have covered most things. Like most things are going to be criminal or commercial. I mean, they wouldn't have to be, but that would that would cover a lot. And then there's a case uh, that I teach uh, called Scuriotes versus Florida from the middle of the 20th century, where a man is, uh, Mr. Scuriotes, is prosecuted for illegally harvesting sea sponges in what is arguably like international waters. It's like waters off the coast of Florida that's so far away that it might not be in the state of Florida. And he, and it's, he found it's a Florida statute, he's prosecuted by Florida. And he, are, like the case is about like, what is the boundary of Florida? And the Supreme Court gets the case and says, it's really hard to tell what the boundary of Florida is, but it doesn't matter because even if this took place not at all in Florida, like there's no reason Florida can't prosecute him. Why can't Florida prosecute him for something that takes place outside of Florida? It's not a very like satisfyingly reasoned case, but but it makes clear the court thinks that sometimes you can prosecute people for things outside of the state. Now it's a little different because he's not in another state. I mean, we think that's the important piece of this, but we're trying to put these things together. It's just it's just clear there are various cases there's an overarching intuition but then unfortunately it's not clear anybody follows that through in a logical in a logical way what do you think the right answer should be i struggle with this i think that the principles of territoriality were understood at the founding as a kind of unwritten common law the law of nations or the law of nations applied to interstate relations so in the pre-Erie world, that would have been kind of general law. Mm-hmm. Not quite constitutionalized, although you know that it's hard for any one state to change the general law, and some state attempts to abrogate the general law might have abrogated particular provisions, but that would have been kind of the backdrop. And I haven't fully worked through all the ways that would work and how it would be enforced. And that would relate to your theory in a you know, article you know you're developing that that might be incorporated into due, due process post Fourteenth Amendment. Yes. Or the privileges immunities clause post Fourteenth yeah. Amendment. Yeah, yeah I, that's one implication I've been I've been going back and forth about, and my co-authors and I have been going back and forth about. But maybe and the period of time where the court did try to sort of constitutionalize these territoriality principles most aggressively were after the Fourteenth Amendment. And so, yeah, you might you might see the Fourteenth Amendment as as constitutionalizing the police power, including the kind of territorial limits on the police power, maybe. But I'm not, I'm not positive that's right. My predecessor in office, a uh, constitutional officer at Chicago uh, named William Winslow Krosky, who was kind of one of the first uh, originalist scholars of the 20th century, like in the mid, in the 1940s and 1950s, wrote this like monumental and wacky book about everything in the Constitution. And he thought that the full faith and credit clause 
took that general law and constitutionalized it. That when the Constitution says full faith and credit shall be given to the laws of their states, it means the current principles of conflict of laws, like known in international law, are hereby, you know, made constitutional. He had like a very complicated uh, argument for why that was true, which I am skeptical of, but it would really solve all the problems that were true. Would that only work? Like, what if you committed a committed a crime in D.C. and a state wanted to punish that? There's no other <laughs> state there to give to which full faith and credit needs to be given. It's true. It might not bind might not bind the federal government, and therefore it might not bind the territories, which also does kind of match on. Wouldn't, then it wouldn't bind the state, right? Oh wait, if I've, the state would have no obligation to give full faith and credit to what happened in D.C., right? So it would only be interstate cases, you're saying? Like if if Virginia just started saying, like, let's criminalize a bunch of stuff happening in D.C., what would be the problem with that? I'm not positive. I think he might think that the full faith and credit clause, like, constitutionalizes the scope of every state's laws, both the amount of credit they have to give other states' laws and the amount of credit they can give to their own laws. this This is quite a detour. Um, yeah, sorry. Inter- no, it's it's interesting though. I mean, it does seem like it does seem like maybe this could have been resolved on a slightly narrower ground, in the sense that like this is not really an extra. I don't think this is an extraterritorial law. It's not right? directly extraterritorial. Yeah, definitely not directly. Right, but it is. I mean, that's. I guess you could say that even if there is a direct extraterritoriality principle under the Dormant Commerce Clause, this isn't it, and so we don't need to get into it. Assume, I mean, the court had several petitions about this extraterritoriality question before, though. There are a lot of cases that start to sort of like, you know, press the boundaries of this. So, and Justice Gorsuch, as I think, was familiar with several of them um, from his from his judicial career. So, this might be one of those times the court thought a broad ruling would actually be healthier and more clarifying for the law, especially given that they all seem to agree on it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's the harder part is the stuff uh, on which they don't agree, and actually working through what the court as an institution thinks about this next question is a little trickier. So yeah. help us out here. Oh, I'll try. Okay. The parts of the Dormant Commerce Clause. There's the extraterritoriality part. That's dead. There's the does this law facially discriminate against interstate commerce part. That's the main part, but everybody agrees it doesn't. This applies to California grown pork too. And it, you know, applies regardless of where the pigs are raised. The third part is something called pike balancing after a, a old case that the um, court decided that seems to call for some kind of a, of a weighing that is, is, is debated in this case, but some kind of a weighing between the, the benefits to the state and the costs to some other state, you know, trying to capture some sense that if you're doing something that like it doesn't really make a lot of sense or doesn't seem that important to your state and like massively burdens other states. Maybe that's, you know, well, maybe that's the fact of discrimination. Maybe it's unconstitutional for some reason. And the court split several, the court, how do we say this? Five justices agree that in this case, the law does not violate, or in this case, on this record, the law does not violate pike balancing, right? They disagree about why. I mean, looking at David Post's thing, I mean, he says, at least, if you add up Barrett, the kinds of economic harms alleged are sufficient to state a claim here, right? But Yes, but she, she thinks that it doesn't violate yeah, it because yeah. 
for a different reason. Yeah. But can you say the thing you just said again? Okay. Five justices agree that this law on this record does not violate pike balancing. Yes. Like, okay. The so law should be upheld on pike balancing. Yes. They disagree about why. Yes. Right. Okay. One argument for why it should be upheld is that there just isn't that big of a burden on out-of-state harms. Right? So one set of the justices, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, think that ultimately this is just not a big enough burden uh, or the right kind of burden, the right kind of economic harm to qualify under under Pike. But that's only four of them. And they rely heavily on an earlier case called Exxon. Justice Barrett, who is uh, crucial to the majority, has a different reason for thinking this doesn't violate Pike, which is that Pike calls for balancing costs and benefits. And this is a case where the costs are economic, but the benefits are moral. And you can't balance an economic cost against a moral benefit because they're incommensurable. And therefore, you can't engage in balancing. But she stresses. What's that? You just can't do it. It just doesn't. You, just, you have to. This is this is kind of a, a categorical. You know, you can't do Pike in certain kinds of cases. Right. It's like I think there's a there's a quote that it's you know like asking whether task is like being asked to decide whether a particular line is longer than a particular rock is heavy. Like they're just in different units, so yeah. there's no, you know, is this lot line heavier than your yeah. rock is long? That's a particularly good line from the Gorsuch opinion, but as you might. My guess, it's actually a quote of a Justice Scalia opinion. <laughs> Justice Scalia had good lines. Yeah. But Barrett stresses that were it not for the incommensurability problem, she does think there's a big burden. So she's not willing to sign on to the no burden theory. She just has a, has a different theory. And then we've got two of the justices that are in the majority on the disposition who disagree with the Gorsuch, you know, you can't do the balancing. Thing. So Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor think you can do the balancing, right? That it's awkward that the law asks us to balance incommensurable things, but but we do it all the time. But they think that there's you know not enough burden, and so this law passes the balance. Okay, and so we have to combine all this with uh, the dissent to try to figure out like let's add up some votes here, and this is when it's going to start to get uh, a little confusing because we have this you know partial dissent by the Chief Justice, joined by Justices Alito, Kavanaugh, and Jackson, interestingly. Right. So this is a, an interesting 5-4 breakdown. And you know, as you said, everybody agrees on the extraterritoriality uh, stuff. But those four, they think it's okay to do the balancing of so-called incommensurables, right? They're okay with that. Yep. And they also think that the burden here is significant. Yep. And so... Adding those up, uh, and there's a this Vol Conspiracy post, uh, David Post, the Post Post, that kind of goes through this and describes it uh, as uh, something that has come up in other cases that we'll talk about in a second as a voting paradox, mm-hmm. where the court, the you know, in terms of how people's votes, the case comes out one way on the outcome, but then if you go issue by issue, and if you aggregated all the court's views on all the issues, the case should come out the other way, mm-hmm. and it's a weird byproduct of the fact that. We aggregate justices' votes based on their bottom line outcome vote, not based on their views on the merits of any particular issue. Mm-hmm. So add it up. We've got we now get six justices who say it's okay to do the balancing, right? 
It's okay to balance incommensurable harms. It's okay to balance economic harms against non-economic benefits. Six justices say yes, that you can do that. Yes. And then you've got five justices. If you add up Barrett, the four dissenters, we've got five people who at least think the harms here would be sufficient to state a claim. Is that fair? Yes. Five people who think the harms here are sufficient to state the kind of claim that would normally require you to balance. Yeah. And then, yes, exactly. So, right. So can you balance incommensurable harms? Yes. Six to three. Are the harms here sufficient to state a claim? Yes. Five to four. But wait. Challengers still lose. Challengers lose because the six to three and the five to four don't line up in the right way. And this is something that that has happened uh, in other cases and is always kind of a mess. Um, one case I teach in criminal procedure adjudication uh, is Arizona versus Fulminante. It's, it's an interesting case about coerced confessions, and I teach the actual substantive coerced confession stuff in my investigations class. But uh, in adjudication, we, we teach it to talk about the harmless error doctrine. When can a mm-hmm. constitutional error still uh, you know, uh, be ignored on appeal because it was harmless? I have a whole article about this. We've spent like way too long in the show talking about it. But for present purposes, the thing that's interesting is something that breaks down weirdly there, where there's, it's a case where the Arizona Supreme Court had reversed a conviction uh, because it concluded that there was a coerced confession and that it required reversal of the conviction. Reversal of the conviction. And you go up to the Supreme Court and you have five justices. It's all broken down in a weird way. You had five justices who agreed that the confession was coerced. But then you have five justices who agree that such a such an error could be a harmless error. Mm-hmm. And then you've got five justices who think that the confession was not harmless, so it required reversal. But in terms of who agrees with which part, if you go in terms of outcome, it actually should have come out the other way. So you there you have Justice Kennedy who thinks that it was not a coerced confession and so should have voted to... Uh, reverse the judgment below based on outcome says, you know, just to make things less complicated in terms of what we're going to sending it back down. If we were going to have to send it back down to the Supreme Court, Arizona Supreme Court, this would be a huge mess. I will just go along. I will accept the holding of my five justices in the majority, uh, fellow justices, that this was coerced. And then I'm going to agree that it was not harmless on these facts. Mm -hmm. So kind of a different thing than what happens here. Right. So he sort of votes the wrong way in order yeah. to avoid the voting paradox. He does way. issue voting and not outcome voting, but most of right. the time the justices do outcome yeah. voting. So there are two other. So there's a rule called the Marx rule that is partly used to decide like what is the precedent when the court is splintered and it says you're supposed to look at the you know narrowest opinion necessary to support the to support the decision, but that has itself been subject to great disagreement and criticism. Because I think there's a circuit split among at least the at least the disagreement with low court judges, and I think even a circuit split about you know do you do that the way we've just been talking about by like totaling up the dissenters with the majority, or do you only look at the people who are citing the majority, and then how do you decide which one is the narrowest? Uh, a friend of the show, Richard Ray, has a important article in the Harvard Law Review suggesting that the rule you know should should be abandoned. I mentioned this because he supports the Justice Kennedy thing. She calls the screws rule after like a 1940s case where some justice does this, where you should just, some justice should just suck it up and break the voting paradox by engaging in like a different kind of issue voting to like clearly support uh, judgment in the case that then once you get, get through it. That's, that's only a subset of Marx issues though, right? That Yes. Yeah. Some of them no, that doesn't come right. up. Right. 
but so I notice this also because in this case, this issue then also gets sort of there's some weird sniping between Kavanaugh and Gorsuch about these yeah. problems. So about like what is the holding of this case? Well, so I especially love Kavanaugh footnote three. The portions of Justice Gorsuch's opinion that speak for only three justices, uh, that's the Kavanaugh Barrett Thomas part, refer to the Chief Justice's opinion as a quote unquote dissent. <laughs> but <laughs> On the question of whether to retain the Pike balancing test in cases like this one, the Chief Justice's opinion reflects the majority view, because six justices agree to retain the Pike balancing test. The Chief, Alito, Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, Jackson. Yeah. Thus, on that legal issue, Justice Gorsuch's opinion advances the minority yeah. view. So it's well, like dissent denial. The Chief Justice's own opinion is described as a dissent, right? Like That's what <laughs> it says. You know, It says dissenting in part, right? It does say dissenting in part, although maybe it doesn't mean that part. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, Maybe just dissenting on the outcome. It's funny because, of course, these things are all formatted, you know, by the court. So, like, put Justice Gorsuch's opinion first. <laughs> but it, you know, it's funny to see that kind of denialism. Uh, but then there's an equally sort of weird response from Justice Gorsuch in footnote four of his opinion. Both dissents seek to characterize today's decision as "quote unquote" fractured in an effort to advance their own overbroad readings of Pike and layer their own gloss on opinions they do not join. But the dissents are just that dissents their glosses do not speak for the court today the court unanimously disavows petitioners almost per se rule against laws of extraterritorial effects when it comes to pike a majority agrees that heartland pike cases seek to smoke out purposeful discrimination in state laws or seek to protect the instrumentalities of state uh, transportation a majority also rejects any effort to expand pike's domain to cover cases like this one some of us for reasons found in part 4b others of us for reasons found in part 4c Today's decision depends equally on the analysis found in both of those sections. Without either, there is no explaining the court's judgment affirming the decision below. A majority also subscribes to what follows in part five. I read Justice Gorsuch as saying under Marx, Mm -hmm. both of these are the narrowest ground. Yeah, which doesn't really make sense. I mean, that's not, I mean, he's right that if you're trying to make sense of a case like that, or you're trying to make sense of what the court did. Both of the rationales are necessary because, you know, that's the only way you can get to five. But that's, isn't that always going to be true in a Marx case? Where, like, to explain what's going on, you have to say, well, these justices thought this and this justice thought that, right? This well, Is this different than any other Marx situation? Well, the easy Marx cases are where one view is a wholly included subset of another. Yeah. Right. And, and then we yeah. say, like, four justices say, this is always bad. And one justice says, this is sometimes bad, and his sometimes is a wholly inclusive subset of the always. Yeah. And we just use the sometimes person as the narrowest ground. Here, because the two views are kind of not overlapping, right? Like there are going to be cases that have the incommensurability problem, but not the lack of burden problem, and vice versa. It's different in that sense. I think yeah. what maybe what Gorsuch is saying, what would be right, is to say like the state is going to have to meet both. Uh, the state to win is going to have to show both that the I mean, to get the benefit of the of the holding of this case, it's going to have to show both that it's an incommensurability case and that it's not an incommensurability case. case. Why would the state? Uh, the state win. Incommensurability helps the state. Oh, the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. California wants to defend future Prop 12s, yes. Prop 13. But that, that, that seems wrong, right? Because they don't have to show that to convince. You know, they only have to show that. Only three justices would care, and then if the other the other six don't care, if the state can only show incommensurability in the future, imagine a new law, yeah. right? Imagine a new law that bans eggs. It's about eggs. Yes. <laughs> if they show only incommensurability, they lose six three because they have yeah. six justices who 
don't yeah. don't care about commensurability. And if they show only lack of burden, they lose five don't four. They, don't they win? No, they show only lack of burden. I suppose it's a, a, I suppose that case is commen- as a, the things are commensurable. Then the state would lose Barrett because Barrett says. Well, it depends on that. Would be more fact specific, though, wouldn't it? If they can, if they show no incommensurability, um, if they sh- if they show if they can't satisfy incommensurability, but then it just comes down to burden. Wouldn't it just be it would just be a fact specific question about the burden? Sure, but if it's similar to this, you know, similar to this yeah. case. So in that sense, it is true. This is a kind of a narrow win for the state because yeah. to sustain these laws, at least on this on these facts, you need both. I think you need to have incommensurability and then be able to convince two people yeah. about the balance, how the balancing comes out. Yeah. Fair enough. But, I, but yeah, but if you are, if you're a lower court confronted with a similar incommensurability case involving incommensurables, that clearly doesn't, that doesn't end the inquiry, right? You then have to, you still would go on and do the balancing. I think so. I mean, that's that's the idea. You do have um, to, right? Because if the balancing clearly comes out against the state um, and it goes up, then you know the three. You've just got three, yeah. three people mad about inconsistency, and then okay, good. now I, that would be right unless Richard Ray is right. So, it you know, it's true there are six people on the Supreme Court right now who say that even if it's incommensurable, we would strike this down if it had a bigger burden. But those six people have not yet written a Supreme Court opinion together, right? They're like a, they're not yet a band. They're just like an imagined potential all-star band. And until those six people come together, like we have, and this actually gets into like the nature of precedent. Until those six people come together, we know how the Supreme Court would rule. We know it would rule six to three to strike down the law. But there's not yet a precedent that says that. So I'm not sure as a lower court judge what you have to do. I think as a lower court judge, you might be entitled to say, Look, yeah, it's pretty clear from these various things they've said that they will they will go there, but they haven't gone there yet. Unless you think dissenters have the ability to make law or to make precedent, which is the Marx question. But why would the three justices and the plurality and the have the ability to make law? There might just be less law on this topic. That's like like you'd say it would, you'd have to treat it as an open question. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, you'd say it's still an open question. Okay, that's fair. But you couldn't, you wouldn't just say, you know, get to the incommensurability thing and say, okay, state definitely wins. You could, I mean, you could, you could, you could say it's an open question whether the state should definitely win. And I find the Barrett view persuasive. And so I'm going to adopt that and let the Supreme Court overrule it if they want to. That's fair. Okay. Anything else to say about this one? Do you think there are going to be more cases like this? I mean, do you think? In practice, will there? I mean, there are lots more laws like this. In practice, do you think we're going to get kind of like the follow-on case pretty soon, or do you think this is whether it gets the court? I don't know. I mean, I do think this is going to encourage maybe more states to do stuff like this, and I think we're seeing more and more kind of grandstanding type efforts of states, you know, in both both red and blue states to do stuff like this. I mean, obviously, one of the big things people are going to be concerned about is you know to what degree, and this this has came up with. Justice Kavanaugh's kind of very short uh, concurring opinion in Dobbs, the abortion case, to what ability do states have the ability, to what ability can they regulate and criminalize stuff people do in relation to abortion in other other states, you know, traveling to a different state to get an abortion, uh, things like that. That's sort of 
relevant to this question of extraterritoriality, but I can also see a bunch of blue states doing stuff like this. I know California is like really eager to kind of use its power to punish uh, states that it doesn't agree with. So like right, right now, if you teach at a public university in California, like you're not allowed to get reimbursed for your travel to like a bunch of states in the South. <laughs> they have laws that um, California doesn't like on social mm-hmm. issues, which, you know, I think is is a dumb dumb rule that you should let people you know you want the free flow of ideas and stuff like that. But I don't know whether it's going to get back to the court super soon. I can see this kind of bedeviling the lower courts for a while. But I was thinking like between this and the court's decision in Wayfair five years ago that says you know it's it's okay for states to you know make sellers in other states pay you know collect sales taxes, right? We're you know we're maybe going to really see kind of a more complexity and fragmentation of the nationwide, you know, markets, right? States are now have between those two things. If you are a seller of goods, there's a lot of potential law that you might be subjected to uh, in other states that you have to be aware of. It's going to get, make it kind of messy. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Now, of course, this is also this all takes place in the shadow of the possibility of Congress acting. Oh, so yeah. Congress, that well-functioning institution. Well, you might think that that once big businesses start to get uh, face sufficient problems dealing with local state, local state regulations, they might be capable of of getting bipartisan legislation together. That unless they're woke, know, we don't do favors for woke businesses anymore. They'll be just woke enough. Speaking of waking, I did enjoy one aside from Justice Gorsuch which I hadn't seen before, which is Justice Gorsuch makes this point of how Congress could act, you know, under the Commerce Clause. And of course, as the irony, this case is about the dormant Commerce Clause, which is kind of like the unwritten part of the Commerce Clause. So Justice Gorsuch refers to it on page twenty-one as under the wakeful Commerce Clause, Congress has the power. Yeah, that was, that, was a, that was a good line. I don't always give him credit for good lines, but I thought that was pretty good. There was one other part of his, just in terms of writing of his opinion that I thought was, you know, reasonably well done, which is in the part where he's saying, here's why we shouldn't do incommensurability, why we shouldn't um, be willing to balance those things. So he sort of says, look, this is leaves us with task no court is willing uh, to undertake. Some might reasonably find one set of concerns more compelling. Others might fairly disagree. How should we settle that dispute? The competing goods are incommensurable. Your guess is as good as ours. More accurately, your guess is better than ours. In a functioning democracy, policy choices like these usually belong to the people and their elected representatives. And I thought that was interesting, kind of writing in the second person like that. Like, who is you there? Mm-hmm. Like a voter? Me personally? Is it, is it you, Will? It's you, the reader, whoever yeah. you are. But who is, yeah. who is the reader? Because it's kind of, you know, you, it kind of raises this question of who is the audience for judicial decisions? Is it just lower courts? No, clearly not. It's, it's the man on the street. And it was kind of a more kind of explicit kind of break the fourth wall moment uh, in a Supreme Court opinion. And I thought about it for a while and I was like, okay, I think I think I like that. It's not quite a mixed metaphor, but it's a little funny because like the your guess is as good as ours is a well-worn phrase where the you the you isn't like really you. It's just yeah. kind of, you know, and then but then the the next sentence, the the wrinkle on it, that well your guess is better than ours, it kind of then like, oh you have to ask who the you is. Yeah, it sort of breaks the it breaks the fourth wall. Yeah, yeah, it's a little so, bit. It was. It's a little disconcerting to read, and yeah. I kind of had to think about it about whether I liked it. Uh, I, I think not. I like it. Yeah, I don't know if I like the substance of it, but just in terms of rhetorical forensic style, that it wasn't at, bad. At the risk of a of asking about sore topic, Dan, are you coming around on Gorsuch style? 
I, he, I, I think he's real uneven. So I, I, you know, infamously criticized Austin Gorsuch's early writing style. Uh, created a Twitter, ha- uh, Twitter hashtag, and there was a Washingtonian article about it. I've, I've tried to disavow. Some people got mad at me about that. I still think it was really funny, whether it was right or not. But I still think he's real uneven. I think he has some, you know, he's his slugging percentage is okay, but his on base percentage is like is not great. So I know that's not Magic the Gathering. Will I don't know if you, if I can do baseball metaphors. No, no, I th- I think I, I think okay, I, yeah. Like he gets some hits that are you know he hits for extra bases once in a while, but he, like he he kind of uh, doesn't get on base. This is golf, yeah. right? <laughs> Basically, sports ball. So I don't know. I mean, he's no Justice Scalia. I think he would love to be Justice Scalia. I don't think anybody in the court is quite as good as Justice Scalia, but you know, he's not. He's not one of the. T- he's not. He's not one of the two best writers on the court. I think the two, and you're not including the ghost of Justice Scalia as one of them. Does he still write stuff on the court? Well, I mean, he's, he's quoted a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not including him because he's not doing actively doing writing. He's just he has written and is being resurrected. I assume you're picking Kagan and the Chief as the two yeah. best writers. Yeah. yeah. That's and the then, and then you'd have to think about where does Kavanaugh fit in. I don't have enough data about Barrett Jackson. I think Justice Thomas's opinions—they're just too kind of straightforward. Like he doesn't—he doesn't ever, he hardly ever, kind of takes a big swing writing style-wise. Yeah, I think that's right. I will say the more opinions we have taking big swings and not meeting Justice Scalia's standards, the more that makes me appreciate some of the the just like. <laughs> Just the facts type yeah. opinions that are like clear but not flashy. But yeah, and just as Sotomayor has some good some good moments, and then she has other opinions that I think are more pedestrian. So mm-hmm. I don't know enough about that. But he does uh, in shortly after that uh, section uh, I just quoted. He he quotes Lochner versus New York, famous uh, Justice Holmes dissent about how the court shouldn't be in the business of you know regulating the economic sphere based on their own judgments about costs and benefits, both uh, about economic policy. I thought that was, you know, kind of interesting. Would it just be Lochnerism to do what he doesn't want them to do here? Well, I think he's making the specific, he's even invoking the specific famously quoted line from Justice Holmes's dissent in Lochner that, you know, the court's trying to engage in in their own kind of cost-benefit analysis, risks reading their own economic theories into the Constitution. Justice Holmes famously said that the Constitution does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's Social Statics, probably one of the most quoted books that nobody reads anymore. Uh, well, it's actually it's kind of a good read. And You've read that whole book? You haven't read that book. My colleague has read that book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought about lying and just saying I read the book, but I don't yeah, lie. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let you get away with that. Or for that matter, Gorsuch says, Mr. Wilson Pond's Pork Production Systems. <laughs> See, W. Pond, J. Manor, and D. Harris, Pork Production Systems, Efficient Use of Swine and Feed Resources. I'm going to also joke, say that neither Justice Gorsuch nor his clerk read that whole book. I bet a clerk read that whole book. I don't believe that. They're too busy. I would totally have read the whole book. As a clerk, you can't. The entire book, like a 400-page manual Is it about efficient pages? use. I don't know. It's, it's probably pretty long. Yeah, okay. Google Books thinks it's like 445 Yeah, <laughs> There's no way. Uh, right, I think fine. you would look at the introduction and be like, okay, this is a book about you know, Ugh. the technical that, details of swine and feed resources. It has so a lot fine. of pictures. I'm looking at it now. It's kind of gross. Can you, can, why don't you have your library acquire, acquire it? Uh, and we can do an episode on it. Would you read it? No. I would let you and then let you like do story time and tell me about it. Whoa, it's got a lot of tables. Whoa. All right. <laughs> Okay. 
So I'm noticing that we are now several minutes away from the time that I have to stop recording. Uh, That's only partially my fault because we get a late start because you were busy. And so I'm now increasingly concerned that we don't have time, uh, as I sort of predicted, to talk about those uh, fraud cases. Well, they came out exactly as we predicted, right? So you can just yeah. go back and listen to the old episode. Yeah, and they're they're both quite, you know, fairly short opinions that don't take kind of radical positions. I think they both kind of end up in like somewhat moderate places, but they, you know, in both cases they rule uh, against the government. In uh, Prococo, you've got an opinion by Justice uh, Alito. In Ciminelli, you've got an opinion by uh, Justice uh, Thomas. And I might have more to say about them, but uh, but not today. Can I ask you one question about them? You may. Do, do you think so – I've seen reported the idea that this is kind of like part of the court's corruption because the court is corrupt and then now here it is deciding these cases that kind of like further legalize corruption and that's part of sort of the, you know, the corruption court theme. Is there anything to that? I think there's like – that's 10% right in the sense that that I don't think it's corruption – I will say this. The court has done, I think, a good job taking a very close look at government theories in a lot of white-collar cases, In actually over a fairly long period of time, over many decades. And there's been just a ton of situations where the government has you know, advanced fairly novel, potentially troubling theories that are designed just to kind of put people in prison if they're doing kind of shady stuff in relation to business and politics, even if it's kind of hard to like put your finger on exactly what makes it particularly bad and under theories that seem like a little dangerous. And I think the court has paid attention to that and and kind of reined that in. To the extent that there's criticism there, I would say the court seems much more concerned about those kind of problems, fair notice, prosecutorial discretion in white collar criminal cases than they do in other swaths of criminal law. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's corruption. Uh, exactly, but it is—it's kind of a a choice uh, to focus their resources in a particular place, maybe driven by sympathy for the kinds of people that get charged with these crimes, uh, rather than the kinds of folks that are charged with kind of other kinds of federal crimes. I don't disagree with that, but I—I I don't think you know, and and you know, these cases—they're not many of them are not dividing the court on ideological lines. These cases, uh, the court is is pretty uh, unanimous in how they should come out. So I, I don't I just don't think that's quite the right right framing. I mean, I do think like they're interesting because Justice Alito uh, hardly ever rules for criminal defendants and he's a little bit more willing to do so in cases involving uh, white collar defendants. Uh, he provides, although when he does so, he, it's very grudging and he'll often like uh, sort of say, you know, I, I do want to rule this way, but only just to make clear, like this is a really, really narrow uh, result. Mm-hmm. He does that uh, in uh, a concurring opinion in the Ciminelli case. He mm-hmm. sort of says, yeah, I, I think we should reject this government theory, but like, here's like a bunch of reasons why maybe, you know, in this case, like we can still put this guy in prison and it won't, it isn't going to be that big of a deal uh, in other cases. Uh, he does something similar in Yates. I think that the Yates, I think is the only case that's the case about whether you can um, get someone for under this destruction of evidence statute for throwing fish into the water, whether that counts. Uh, basically, the question is whether fish counts as a tangible object. seems like it should. Five justices say it doesn't. Justice Alito is the kind of tie-breaking vote. He writes a super narrow concurrence that sort of stands for hardly anything other than that 
you know, you can't put this guy in prison. Uh, but I think it's the only one where maybe he's the, the tie-breaking vote in a criminal case to send to, to let the criminal free. But yeah, I don't, I don't like, I don't know if the corruption is the right, is the right frame. Cause I don't, I, you know, I don't necessarily think Justice Kagan is sitting there thinking, oh gosh, I'm really worried about being prosecuted for all the stuff I'm doing. Let me write the rule in a narrower way. I mean, maybe it, maybe it does inform it in the sense that they are aware that there's all sorts of stuff that they do, you know, kind of informal context they have with people that, you know, there need to be bright lines around uh, so that like people don't try to throw them in prison. I don't know. I think it's maybe more diffuse than that. You're just, you're just staring at me. No, I think I already said I agreed with you. And okay, but I said, sound, you said more stuff. It's sound, well, yeah, but it was, you, said, you said it was even more reasonable. So it's going to sound even more <laughs> lame if I, if I okay. uh, agree with yeah. you again. I don't know. I'll think about that more for next time and see if I can come up with a spicier, spicier take on that. I think maybe I'm supposed to say, this is, this is corruption. I just think when you get into the weeds a little bit, I mean, I mean, I'm also motivated by the fact that like, you know, understanding the legal issues in the case, I think the government like takes a lot of ridiculous positions, right? Yeah. The government has like taken some crazy positions in some of these cases. And there's a reason that courts, you know, especially the Supreme court, when it actually gets these, it's like, wait, really? Is that what you're saying? No, no, you can't do that. That's not how it works. And I tend to think the court is right. And so I don't think I'm, corrupt i don't really have any power and oh no come really, on man. yeah i mean uh, the 12 listeners of the show you know i don't really uh do much to persuade them they just write podcast reviews uh about how i'm ineffective whiny and you're whiny I, I am i am in this and many other areas and nobody's really given me kind of like money like even kind of soft benefits. No one's taking me on trips to kind of shape the coverage uh, on the show, let alone to exercise any other kind of power. So I don't think I'm captured. Mm -hmm. I'd be happy to be. I mean, I could use the money. I could use the trips, but I think I'm actually coming down where the court does for like actual legal reasons. If you can believe it once in a while, we, 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 we have cases that like turn on the law and not just like whether you're Republican or Democrat. Once in a while. (laughs) All right. So thanks very much for listening to the show. Thank you for those of us who have left us reviews. And even if they're negative, we'd prefer to have the positive ones. So, you know, please, if you like the show, go and uh, drown out some of those negative voices on the Apple podcast app in particular, uh, or elsewhere. If you get your podcasts elsewhere, we'd appreciate it. Go to our website, dividedargument.com. We have transcripts of the episodes where you can fact check our predictions. Those usually go up, you know, within a day or two of the episode. You should go to store.dividedargument.com. We have some uh, merchandise uh, for the true diehard uh, fans of the show. You can email us, pod at dividedargument.com. We read all the emails, not great about responding to them, but they do uh, shape our thinking. And so we appreciate them. You can leave us a voicemail, uh, 314-649-3790. We may play it on the show. Uh, We may not, but we do uh, listen to those as well. You especially play them if they're in song form. Thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring all of our endeavors. I think we'll have more Supreme Court opinions coming pretty soon. So hopefully we'll be on the air soon. And if it's a long time before we record the next episode, it's because Will is on an all-expenses paid vacation, uh, paid by Harlan Crow. 
It's not going to affect my coverage. <laughs> All right. 